Tonight's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of the Lord. Speaking for myself here, I wouldn't want to impose any sort of lack of enthusiasm on anybody else. But I don't feel tingly or excited or happy or hopeful. I don't feel much. Maybe a little bit angry when I hear the promises made in the scripture tonight. Like every other year on the second Sunday of Advent. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. I'm not sure what it means, and I guess it doesn't seem true. A lot of flesh has been shocked, gassed, burned, buried, and rotted since these promises were made. And it's hard to believe that all that flesh, now indisputably gone, saw the salvation of God? Maybe I'm being too technical. But I don't think Luke meant that all our disembodied spirits, freed at last from the material world, will one day see shiny streets paved of gold in the clouds somewhere. He says flesh. He means flesh. The promise is for breathing beings with skins and hearts. But that's why it seems so impossibly untrue. I keep thinking about this letter I saw two weeks ago when I was in Berlin at the memorial to the murdered Jews in Europe. They had these scraps and fragments of correspondence displayed. And I read this letter from an 11-year-old girl who had seen her friends and neighbors taken to the edge of a mass grave. They were told to undress, and then they were shot. But her worst fears that were so apparent in the letter came from seeing that some of the children, maybe to save a bullet, weren't actually shot. They were just pushed into the grave while they were still alive. I mean, of course that's dramatic. But you know what? There are a lot of dramatic examples of people who suffer and suffer and die terrible deaths. 
There are famines and fires, and wars are raging with no signs of abating far from it. Advent's about waiting, sure. We've been waiting a long time. Some of us are fine. Some of us are decidedly not fine. And guess what? When Christmas gets here, I don't think things are going to look very much different. I mean, Jesus, surprise me. I'm open to surprises. I like the promise that there'll be this sort of radically leveling out. The mountains brought low, the valleys filled, the rough ways made smooth. But again, I don't really see that happening. If we're talking about the distribution of wealth and privilege and opportunities and happiness. I mean, the mountains have been brought low, that's true. Actually obliterated by huge machines. Machines the size of an entire city block. Machines the size of an entire city block. I'm not kidding. That can scoop up to 100 tons in a single load. They dig these holes where the fossil fuel companies drop explosives to literally blow up the mountaintops to get their coal. So yeah, the mountains have been brought low to feed not some beautiful vision of the end of disparity, but to increase the profits of the fossil fuel industry. Mining used to be a thing that, revolved, you know, that involved a lot of people. Not that they were ever the best jobs, but mountain-type mining, mountain-top mining means the corporations don't have to employ nearly as many people. It takes one man to run a machine the size of a city block. And crooked paths have been made straight. Interstates, parking lots, pave over the wetlands so our carbon-spewing vehicles can traverse the landscape smoothly. If that's what John the Baptism, John the Baptist's voice crying in the wilderness is all about, promising, like, the obliteration of the earth as we know it, then we probably aren't going to be waiting that much longer, to be honest. Tis the season to be jolly. John the Baptist comes around every second Sunday of Advent. And he always takes us someplace where they're not playing Frank Sinatra. He's not a festive figure. There's definitely a tension that you get at Advent from the Advent texts. Between this hope of the coming of this beautiful good news of great joy and the expectation of something slightly frightening, like we heard in the text last week. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. And like Rai said last week, this fits these days. People seem to have a little more fear and foreboding than comfort and joy. Maybe everybody thinks this in every age. But it seems like when I was young, the future was so full of potential. Aero cars with bubble tops. Computers were going to work magic, not subject us to tyranny. George Jetson worked an hour a day, two days a week. <laughs> Judy and Elroy Jetson could push a button and get a piece of cake or whatever they wanted to eat. 
And Rosie, the lovable robot, no evil AI, did all the housework. I was looking forward to that. People are fainting from fear and foreboding. Raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. That redemption or salvation, what we're waiting for at Advent, always sounds a little bit mixed. Like the coming of the Lord isn't something just pretty and sweet. Not just a precious little baby with that milky breath and that ambrosial smell, you know, right at the top of their heads. I mean, I guess we're waiting for that lovable little package on Christmas morning. But we're also waiting for the God incarnate who lived a pretty rough life. Life with the smell of the sick and the sad and the hopeless about him. A guy who challenged the powers that be seemingly without a great deal of what could be called success and was hunted down and tortured and murdered by the powers. We also wait for that guy at Advent. That's the sort of tension of the season. Baby, crucified God. And you know, maybe the guy who lived a rough life might have something a little more interesting to say than the baby. Really. I mean, I love the God coming into the world as a vulnerable baby thing, but I don't really want a God who is a baby. That would be scary. I mean, don't we need a God that can handle us as murderous, violent, destructive beings? I was just reading an article about some of our refugees in Minnesota about children forced to be soldiers during the Civil War in Sierra Leone who watched their mothers raped and then shot in the head, 12-year-olds forced to be soldiers. Your good fortune, if you have it, is arbitrary. Shootings and genocide, civil wars and mass murders, starvation and so much blood. I mean, that's not the sort of stuff you even want to expose a baby to. I think we need the God who suffered at the hands of power to come, whatever that means. Not just the sweet little baby lying in the manger, untainted and unaware of the ways of the world. You know? I mean, seriously, look at the world. John the Baptist promises that all flesh shall see the salvation of God, and then he goes on to talk about the wrath and the axe and the fire. So the promise has a little bit of an edge to it, really. The salvation of God, so the story goes, involves the incarnate God's suffering and dying at the hands of power. I think that makes it pretty clear that salvation, whatever it is, isn't all sweet. Which does make the promise seem to ring a little bit truer to me. I mean, maybe the flesh that sees the Caribbean every winter, and the flesh that tastes fantastic wine, and the flesh that feels the warmth of nice houses and down blankets and good food, and a nice quiet death in their sleep with lots of morphine, doesn't need the suffering God. Maybe their flesh, maybe my flesh, see some sort of salvation every day. But unless you just want to keep 
your door closed and eat your Christmas cookies and bask in the optimism available for the privileged. I think Advent includes facing, seeing the darkness all around us. You kind of got to love Luke. Because though he has the nicest little manger scene in any of all the Gospels, the swaddling clothes, the angels singing, and the shepherds in the fields watching their flocks at night, he doesn't write it that way to make it all seem cute. He's setting the scene for a Gospel that is radically subversive more than heartwarming. Luke takes pains to lay out the world that the word comes to, and it is a world defined by power. It could seem almost annoying that he takes us through this whole meticulous list in the scripture tonight. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pilate being governor, and Herod being tetrarch, and his brother Philip tetrarch, and Lysanias tetrarch, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. But it's really a pretty effective way of writing, a pretty effective way to make this jolting sort of contrast. There's this big, thick power block. Emperor, governor, tetrarch, high priest. The definers of reality, the privileged power elite that governs the world. But the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah, a dumb old man, and Elizabeth, his old barren wife the son of powerless nobodies in the wilderness. It's important to the story that the word comes in the wilderness because that's a place that's beyond the reach of power, a place that is seriously outside, somewhere not fully controlled or policed, out in the wild where there was no surveillance. Is there anywhere like that anymore? The power these days is very invasive. Check out the NSA's website. And if there's no place left outside of the reach of power, then does the word stand a chance? Luke tries from every angle to show how unpowery the origins of the incarnate word are. Mary from nowhere, Nazareth, a young Jewish girl in the Roman Empire. You could hardly pick a person that had less power. And from her womb, her womb, where does that rank in the hierarchy? In her womb, God becomes incarnate. It's outlandish, beautiful, crazy subversive. And if that's not enough, Luke goes on, it's time for Mary to deliver the baby, but there's no place for Mary and Joseph in the inn. I mean, we hardly hear that anymore because it's so cliche. But it's really charged. The child is not born within an acceptable structure. Comes from a womb, a barn. The baby is born in a place where animals go to eat. I like this so much. We might think, oh, they didn't have hospitals anyway, it was primitive, but do you think that Caesar was born among sheep with animal hair and breath and excrement all around? 
It's not meant to be cute, really. It's dirty. And then Luke goes on, an angel appears to announce the birth to shepherds, sheep herders in the fields. You can't get further away from the realm of power. Everyone else was in town getting counted, but the shepherds are so lowly, so rough, they don't even rank to get counted. I mean, who knows if it really happened like this? Probably didn't happen like this. But Luke is trying really hard to make a point. The word of God, the good news comes to the outsiders, not the insiders. Not to the powerful, but to the powerless. Luke tries to make this impossible to ignore. It's so strange that at so many levels, we keep managing to ignore it. It's like we've been drugged by the power to look to the power. Power, power, power. If you're someone who has power, even relatively speaking, someone who loves power and believes in power, I think that the Gospel of Luke would be jarring. It's the outsiders who concern Luke. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Sure. But it might look different depending on where you're standing. That's part of the tension that comes out at Advent. Jesus will put down the powerful from their thrones and exalt those of low degree. He will fill the hungry with good things and the rich he will send empty away. I'm not making this up to sound all revolutionary. It's kind of a radical thing, the Bible, the gospel. The first will be last and the last first. That might be really good news of great joy, but it might not feel like a warm bath for the first and the rich and the powerful for the ones who benefit from the power structure. They might flail a little when it's turned upside down. But when does this happen? Where ever? In the wilderness. Some place where the power elite is unable to work its will, where it's unable to make things happen or keep things from happening. I mean, it's no wonder that there's hardly any trace of wilderness left in the world. The wilderness seems like a dangerous place if you're bent on control. Of course the power wants to cut down all the trees and dam the rivers to make its electricity bulldoze, subdue, subjugate, move into every little place that it can. The word of God is spoken by the outsiders. Find the outside. The powerful will keep talking and talking and listening to each other, blah, 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 blah. Luke is trying to say that their definition of reality will be thwarted by the word of God. Luke's gospel is a radical announcement of an alternative. What does that look like? Jesus was clearly a threat to the institutional foundations of the day. So what does following him look like? 
I'm not really sure, and I'm not all that practiced at it. But I think following Jesus can lead a person down some pretty interesting paths. The insiders are so predictable. The powerful so obsessed with themselves. I like this path. Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping suggests that next year, instead of getting a parade permit, the People's Climate March should try a different tactic, get everyone to drive their cars into Manhattan and abandon them there. So that the island is utterly jammed with stationary vehicles. You leave the emergency lanes open, of course, but basically you stop the fossil fuel industry for a while. I mean, I don't know, but where is the wild these days? I think that you can find it. Try to spend some time there an hour a day or once a week, somewhere beyond surveillance, beyond the reach of the powers, or create that space. Risk getting arrested doing it, I mean, or maybe it's silence, I don't know. Prepare the way of the Lord. Believe in something that the empire doesn't allow. If you can't make the path straight, then move some rocks around. Don't stay inside, even if you have the privilege of being allowed inside.